Thanks, Andrew. A uh, secret of Granville uh, sermons is that we have to get our uh, uh, Bible readings in a couple of weeks before we're actually due to preach. And uh, I chose my passage from John 8, and I appreciate Andrew reading that really long passage, and we will actually only think about the first verse. It's good to hear an English accent, that's what I say. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come before you under your word this morning, we pray for your spirit, that he would speak to us, illuminate our hearts and minds, encourage and challenge us, that he would do the work that you have for him this morning, and that we might be drawn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, Jesus is in the temple at Jerusalem. Uh, Most likely, it's shortly after the Feast of Tabernacles, which uh, we didn't cover in chapter 7, but it's there. He is facing a lot of persecution from the church lead, uh, sorry, religious leaders of the day. In fact, they tried to arrest him in chapter 7. People gather around him again, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. This is one of seven I am's that we find in John. We actually, they're called seven metaphorical I am's. Can we go to the slide? There we go. There's the seven. Um, we have to say metaphorical because there are a number of other I am's in John, but these are the seven that um, particularly speak to Jesus' being, his ministry. And um, John very kindly gives us seven, which is symbolic of completeness. We are number two. I am the light of the world. But number two is a little bit unusual. Not that we don't know it, but it's unusual in that, firstly, it appears twice. It's repeated in chapter 9, And the other thing that's unusual is in chapter 8, Jesus doesn't actually say anything more about this statement. He gives no explanation. And John provides no commentary. As you saw, as Andrew read for us the passage, as it goes on and on, we're waiting for someone to say, this is what it means to be the light of the world. But... No, there's this, this discussion about who's Jesus' father and, and whether his testimony is valid and, and all these sort of things. If we want to understand the light of the world, we need to dig quite a bit deeper. So, there we go. 
Here is our roadmap for this morning. We are uh, going to visit the Old Testament. We've got three stops, Genesis, Psalms, and Isaiah. And we're going to consider light from the Jewish perspective. Then we're going to focus in on the Gospel of John and understand his uh, theme of light. And then finally, we will consider our response. And I forgot what time we started. (laughs) We'll be finished by 12 at least. Okay, so uh, we're going to be moving through a lot of scripture this morning. Uh, So let's uh, take a deep breath. And then here we go. Let's go to Genesis. The creation story. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he separated the light from the darkness. In most ancient cultures, the sun was considered to be one of the more powerful gods. He brought light and warmth. But in the Bible, we see that light, as well as the sun, are created by God. In fact, the sun itself is a mere sideshow. It doesn't make an appearance in the creation story until verse 16, a couple of days after light has been created. It's just one of two great lights, the sun and the moon, to govern the day and the night. Light, the the physical property itself, is the first of all God's creations. And it underpins all his subsequent work. It brings order from the chaos of the formless deep. It is fundamental to both the nature and the purpose of God's creation. Notice as well, the darkness isn't created. Darkness is the uncreated deep. It is not the opposite of light. It is its absence. It is the chaos. But let's move to Psalms. Many references to light in Psalms. and We're only going to sort of skim through these. But here are three examples where we see, for the Jews, light comes to represent God's glory, his holiness, and his goodness. The first, um, in Psalm 18, I should have written them down here, God's light is a metaphor for help to those who are humble. In the second, it is a source of spiritual blessing. And in the third, it's a source of strength 
and protection. And if God is the source of spiritual light to the Jews, by extension, the people of Israel come to see his law, the Torah, as the vehicle by which his light is revealed. Here again, I think. Yeah, we moved on. Good. <laughs> I have to say, when I last preached, I didn't have overheads. We just, like, when I last preached, we didn't have notes. It was, anyway, so. <clears throat> we had candles. Um, but here again, there's three examples. Um, here, God's words and commands recorded in the law, bring the light of understanding to the hearts of his people. They illuminate the way they should live and keep them on a holy path. So by Jesus' day, most Jews would understand the light of the world in this context, either as God's law that shows the world how it should live, if only they would take notice like the Jews have done, or as the temple in Jerusalem, which is a symbolic dwelling of God's presence and light in the world. When Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, most of those around him would consider he's talking about the law of the temple. But before we come to John, we have another witness. The book of Isaiah presents us with three crucial pictures of light. So let's turn to them now. This first picture should be very well known to many of us as we read it traditionally each Christmas. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Isaiah sees the dawning of a new enlightened age in Israel with the coming of a ruler whose names are more accurate, more appropriate to God than a man. And more specifically, not, not yet, I knew it would happen sooner or later. More specifically, notice that this begins in Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the nations, I think it is up there. We'll come back to this later. Now we can move on to the second picture. So this, again, is probably very familiar. Uh, it's part of what we'd call the servant passages in Isaiah it's a picture of God's servant. And he will not only bring justice and redemption to God's people, Israel, but will be a light for the Gentiles. We see it first in chapter 42, and then it is repeated here in chapter 49. Very explicitly, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, 
that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Let's move to the final picture. And here, we're trying to capture something that's really three chapters long and is the culmination uh, of God's work. It is the end of the age, the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Similar to chapter 9, but here now, we see that this light is not just for the Jews, but as we saw in the servant passage, it is a light for the nations that will come and gather at the end of the age. And then we can move on to the last slide, this set. This is later on in that same chapter. Now the sun and the moon, those great lights made in the creation, are actually superfluous. The Lord himself will be their light and their glory. No more will the sun set and the moon wane. No more are we beset by the dangers of the night. No more darkness. No more sorrow. It is a similar picture to that which we find in Revelation, where God and the Lamb illuminate the new Jerusalem and the nations walk by that light. So, now we've laid the groundwork, let's come to John. Let's see what he has to tell us about this light. Again, should be a very familiar passage to us all. The prologue of John. John echoes Genesis, but there are three important distinctions. The Word is the instrument by which God creates all things. Through him, all things were made. And it brings life. But this life that the Word brings is not just biological, for it is the light of all mankind. It brings not just being, but meaning. In Genesis, light and darkness are largely aspects of the physical creation. But in John, there are clear spiritual battle lines being drawn. Here, darkness is not just the absence of light, but a force in opposition to it. And then in verse 5, there is this double meaning The darkness has not overcome it, or the darkness has not understood it. This is the glimpse of John's great theme in his gospel. On the one hand, dark forces oppose and try to smother the light. On the other, just as darkness is really the absence of light, so spiritual darkness 
has no comprehension of true light. It is spiritually blind. John takes this theme further in chapter 3. We have 19 to 21 here. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now it is the people who reject the light because their deeds are evil. They don't want their sins exposed to the light of the word. And yet there are those who recognize the truth and come into the light. John's point here is not that the world is divided into two good people and bad people. We are all sinners. Rather, he's making the spiritual point that as sinners are exposed to the penetrating gaze of the light, they must choose either to abandon their deeds of darkness so as to come into the light, to repent of their sins, in other words, or to cling to those deeds and remain in the dark. They cannot do both. There is no middle ground. John weaves even a deeper richness into this theme. In chapter 9, verse 4, we find the second occurrence of the I am statement we're considering. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here Jesus implies that the light is somehow time-limited. He is the light of the world while he is in the world. The work of the Father must be done during the day because night is coming when no one can work. We find this same idea again in chapter 11 when Jesus is on his way to raise Lazarus. He is responding to the disciples, uh, sorry, responding to the disciples' concern that it might not be a good time to go to Judea. The last time you were there, Jesus, they were trying to kill you. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. A complete aside here, but I love this thing. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Yes, actually, in the Roman world, there were always 12 hours of daylight. It didn't matter how long the sun was shining because they divided the day into 12 and they divided the night into 12. So an hour was a flexible length of time depending on the time of year. Anyway, little, I just, I love that fact. You never knew what an hour, how long an hour was going to be. And uh, in fact, it was uh, bad news if you were actually speaking in a, uh, in a courtroom because you were given an hour or something like that to, in which to make your case. So in the winter, if you were in the northern climes, you had to be quicker at making your case. Anyway, that's not our point here. The point again is that anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. 
but it is when they walk at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Let's move on. So here again, Jesus is now, he's talking to the crowd, and he appeals to the crowd. He says to them, walk while you have the light. You're only going to have it just a little while longer. Darkness is going to overtake you. Put your trust in the light while you still have it. Very strange. And then finally, in chapter 13, at the Last Supper, as Judas is going to betray Jesus, John records this. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. Well, of course it was night. This was a supper. This was the evening meal to be taken after sunset. Of course it was night. Why does John have to tell us it is night? Because John is marking the end of Jesus' public ministry. It is the end of this day that has been progressing through John's gospel. The day of Jesus' ministry is now over, and the night of his suffering, where the powers of darkness will seem to overcome, is at hand. The day is ended, and it is night. Just before we leave this thought of this day of Jesus' ministry. If we look at John, his, Jesus' public ministry begins in chapter 2 at verse 12 with the clearing of the temple. And it ends in chapter 13, verse 30, when John declares that it is night, if you are willing to accept this metaphor then what's interesting is that there are 274 verses before our I am statement in chapter 8, when Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. And there are 268 verses afterwards. It is as though John has placed the statement at the noon or the zenith of Jesus' day of ministry. Is it coincidence? We won't know with this side of heaven. But John constructs his gospel carefully. And there is one other curiosity in the narrative structure uh, that is perhaps more significant to us. And it's found at the end of chapter 7. But before we get there, we need to understand something else, which is the first part of chapter 8 that has preceded our verse. In fact, from it's chapter 7, 53, to chapter 8, 11, this story of the woman caught in adultery that we didn't read this morning. Well, let me quote from the NIV. Nope. Thank you. 
This is what the NIV says as a marginal note. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John chapter 753 to 811. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 736, John 2125, Luke 2138, or Luke 2453. Well, okay, why was what's the point of saying all that? Well, it looks as though when John actually recorded his gospel, he didn't have 753 to 811. Now, that's not to say that it is somehow unscriptural, that we should not take any notice of it. I believe it is an authentic story about Jesus. We accept it as canon. It is just that John probably didn't put it there when he originally wrote his gospel. It's come there later. That means that the verses that immediately precede the statement about I am the light of the world are these. There we go. Seamless. So here... It's chapter 7, verses 50 to 52. And it's a debate going on in the Sanhedrin after they failed to arrest Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And right, we catch right at the end of the debate, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they, as the Sanhedrin, replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. A prophet does not come out of Galilee. Galilee, excuse me. And the very next thing we're told is that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Surely John is inviting us to connect the dots. The Pharisees reject Jesus because he comes from Galilee. Yet Isaiah prophesied that a great light would dawn on Galilee. When Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, the Pharisees ask, where is your witness? John says, Isaiah. So, now we've done all that work. We can move to the next, next slide. As we consider Jesus as the light of the world, we have all of this rich imagery to deepen our understanding. So let's summarize. Jesus is the light of the world because he is the word of God. He brings knowledge and wisdom and the image of his glory and holiness. 
Jesus is the light of the world because he is the source of the spirit life for which we were made in the image of God. And he is the light of the world because his presence and his teaching illuminates people's hearts and souls, revealing our motives and desires. And we've already seen that most people will reject or be blind to this light. And in fact, that is the bulk of the rest of the chapter. And chapter 9, that Susan will be bringing us next week. So, you can wait until then, if she speaks on, on that. But what is our response? Well, firstly, we should worship him. In Revelation chapter 1, John has a vision of Jesus in his risen splendor. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. As we perceive Jesus as the light, we too should be drawn to worship at his feet. Second, we should respond to his call. In John chapter 1, in the prologue, we are told that those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, are given the right to become children of God. We spend much time thinking of ourselves as sinners, and rightly so, because we all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But we're called to recognize that if we have received him, Jesus dwells in us through his spirit and has brought his light to fill us with his abundant life. And then finally, we should live as a child of that light. While Jesus is no longer physically in this world to be its light, he has given us his spirit so that we may continue to walk in this light of life. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that we are the light of the world. As we carry his spirit within, as we live this abundant life, we show the light of life to those around us. 
Therefore, let us carry his light into our week and do the work of our Father. Amen. Amen.